Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that was a reading from the book of Genesis in the Bible. It is the story of the Tower of Babel. Robert, I've got to ask you. What did this story look like when you were a little kid inside your head? Oh, I mean, it. I guess it's always kind of looked the same. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't. I wish I'd, but I. But did had, you picture the tower? 
Yes, but I have to say I had this book of Bible stories with illustrations for each one, and I think it was kind of Gustav Doré inspired. It had a, oh. a kind of spiraling, you know, almost a, a seashell kind of look to it, mm-hmm. and I was always taken by that. I was this was a, a fabulous book in many respects because I remember it had. It just had all of these strange illustrations to them, especially the the more mystical Old Testament uh, occurrences. Now, did it have a direct translation of the Genesis account along with illustrations, or was it like adapted into a modern sort of retelling of the story? I think it was adapted because it was kind of for kids, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I didn't have access in that book to the uh, you know the, the nice King James version that we have here with all the slime and mortar and mm-hmm. and weirdness. Yeah, and some other translations uh, that word slime is rendered tar. <laughs> all right. So if you're not familiar with it, the account in Genesis basically lays it all out. So humans got smart. They got organized. They got more than a little bit ambitious. They decided to build a structure that would show the world just how amazing they really were. Mm-hmm. And uh, God wasn't too crazy about this development, so in this uh, this story, in this myth, he blasts their language so that they can't understand each other and scatters them far and wide, Then the tower is never finished. Right, so this is pretty straightforward about how this would work in the logic of the story, right? If you confuse the tongues, if, you, if, if everybody speaks the same language, they can all work together. Right. If you make them all speak different languages then they can't coordinate their activities, and thus the building of the tower has to stop. Yeah, it's, it's at least going to set back production of the tower somewhat, mm-hmm. uh, because you're going to have to figure out how, I mean, in this magical scenario, you're going to have to figure out how your language relates to their language. You're going to have to f- figure out some sort of common means of communicating, mm-hmm. and it's essentially have to reorganize the whole, uh, the whole venture. Now, this is coming right pretty much right after a catastrophe in the book of Genesis, because this is after the flood narrative. Right. So we've had the whole earth except for one family destroyed in the great flood. Uh, so it's after the flood. And and so you've got people rebuilding civilization, but they, they get a little haughty. And there are multiple ways that you could interpret what they're doing when they're building this tower up to heaven. As a child, I think the way I read the story was, well, they're prideful, right? They're saying, look what we can accomplish. We're Mm -hmm. showing off, and God did not like their pride and punish them for it. More recently, when I look at this story, I see uh, an implied threat, essentially that they are attempting to physically scale to the heavens so that they could challenge the gods. In one sense, they are bridging heaven and earth. Yeah, it's They're like an invasion force. Yeah, it really is. And so what's what's God to do? I mean, there are some accounts I remember reading when I was younger that would even say that the workmen on the tower, like on their lunch break, I guess, mm-hmm. would uh, shoot angels with bows and arrows because it was getting that high, you know, it was getting no that way. close to the heavenly domain. Yeah, when I when I was young, and for the longest, I think it was the definitely the pride version, yeah. the idea that they just got too boastful. Which, on one hand, the the message there ties in, I guess, nicely with a lot of human endeavor. Like, don't get too full of yourself because mm-hmm. God still got the final word. But it also kind of makes God look like a paranoid jerk, where he's just <laughs> like, oh, this tower is getting a little too tall for my liking. I'm going to smite that. Like, why? You're God. They're just building a tower. The the behavior is more understandable if you interpret it as an attempt to overthrow the gods, yes. or a threat against their place in the sky. Uh, it also makes more sense when you think about ancient cosmology with with the idea that the heavens were actually a fairly low plane that you could access through ascension in the air. Right. Uh, when when I was a kid, I had this 
story in my head, and I was trying to picture it as something that had happened. But I also had knowledge of outer space travel and and how big the atmosphere actually was. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to picture it like, okay, so they're building a tower that literally goes up to space. Um, because that's where God is. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I didn't necessarily think God was in space, but that was the only way. Knowing about space, that was the only way I could really interpret it. Uh huh. And so I was picturing a tower that just went up as far as you could see, which is kind of ridiculous to picture. Now, if you see the great artistic representations of the story, it's not really that the tower reaches beyond where you can see. Though, actually, I guess in some of them it is. But mm-hmm. uh, la- like later, we'll be looking at uh, uh, Peter Bruegel's. Uh, interpretation and it's more just kind of this massive project that more reflects pride i think yeah and even with just a basic almost subconscious understanding of engineering you look at those representations and you know this thing is not going to reach a low earth orbit or anything right now you can also look at the myth you know in two basic ways as well i guess you can say that this was basically an etiological uh, attempt you know to explain well why do we have all these languages yeah and etiologies are extremely common in ancient literature and ancient mythology and you find them all throughout the bible like mm-hmm. the, the book of genesis is full of stories that tell you a story about something that happened and it sort of ends with the punchline and that's why these people are now called this which relates to some fact about the story you know mm-hmm. it'd be like uh and then they cut off one guy's leg and that's why this tribe is now called the left footers yeah, and then, but then there's that's this, not a real example. <laughs> I just made that up. But then there's another level to to our interpretation of this tale, this myth, uh, as and and I th- I think it's not too much of a stretch to to think about it being baked into the original purpose as well. Mm-hmm. Is that it explains why people can't get along very well, yeah. why people can't come can can very rarely come together on a mega project, um, and and stick with it like something's going to fall apart. Uh, and you have to have extenuating circumstances to allow something uh, grandiose to happen to begin with. Yeah, and in that vein, I can see how it's not only an ideological story to explain why we have all these different languages on Earth, why there's so much conflict, but it also has some kind of ancient techno-paranoia uh, idea, right? So mm-hmm. there, there's actually a bit of discussion of technological change in the story. They say, you know what? They were burning those bricks thoroughly. This actually represented a technological upgrade in the architecture of ancient Mesopotamia. A lot of it was built with mud bricks. These are Mm -hmm. sun-baked mud bricks that you would form together out of clay and then allow to harden in the sun. And these were, you know, you could build out of them, but they they didn't, they weren't in it for the long haul. Later, if you had fire-baked bricks that you made at a much higher temperature, they would be much sturdier. So we're seeing here... There's technological change. This technological change leads to either, on one interpretation, you know, hubris, people being uh, very haughty about what they can do with their their new ovens and, and kilns now. Or it leads to them saying, you know, we've got this new power. We could ascend to the heavens and, and take over. Yeah, they're, I like how you touched on the sort of the violence of making the bricks because they're, yeah. they're kind of perpetrating an act of violence on the earth, remaking the earth into an artificial mountain. And in so many yeah. mythologies, I mean, the mountain is the mountains are where the gods live. The mountain is the thing that bridges Earth to the sky. Yeah. So eventually, in this episode, we want to take a quick look at uh, about the uh, the diversification of languages and where language speciation comes from. Uh, but before we get into that, I think we just want to talk about the myth itself because it's such an interesting story. Yeah, we're going to kick off with the myth. We're going to talk a little bit about art, and yeah, we're going to get into some engineering and linguistics. But first, the myth. 
Okay. And, uh, and, and as is the case with a number of these Old Testament stories, and we went into this a little bit when we, we talked about the Great Flood in a previous episode, like mm-hmm. these are, these are tales that existed before the, the Old Testament was really a thing. Like these were tales that, that were brought in to this collection. Well, you can, you can definitely look at it that way. Another way to look at it is that, um, if the tales in Genesis didn't necessarily come from other stories that you'd find in, say, uh, ancient Sumerian literature or mm-hmm. something like that, you might say that they had a common ancestor. Yes. You know, that they, they, they might not be direct descendants of one another, but might be cousins that come from more primeval stories. Uh, but yeah, it's hard to know exactly, but you can see parallels in, in other ancient Sumerian mythology that are very interesting. And I want to get into it in a little bit, but first, I just wanted to take a peek at some of the translation notes, which was, is, this is one of my favorite things to do about an old Bible story is go look up a fairly literal translation, such as like the New American Standard Version. Mm-hmm. That's a trans, English translation of the Bible that more so than most versions tries to follow the literal word for word, uh, progression of the text. Now, a lot of times this doesn't necessarily re, render the best reading mm-hmm. um, but it is just more interesting to see what the original language looked like and then also look at there there'll be usually if there's like a, a if it's a good online resource there'll be like footnotes you can click that'll tell you literally what the original word was so for example everywhere the word language appears in this original story it says the whole earth was of one language and of one speech literally that's the whole earth was of one lip or had one lip so I'm imagining everybody sharing a lip or, or sort of lip locking all the time when they're talking. <laughs> uh, and the, the one speech was of one set of words or few words. And so when God speaks to God, God is speaking to some kind of other heavenly beings, one would assume other gods in the earlier pantheon or angels. Uh, God says, let us go down there and confuse their lip so that they will not understand one another's lip. But there's also another uh, ideological feature of this story, which is that it tries to explain the origin of the term Babel. So you've got this line in verse 9 where it says, Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. So he's talking about this place called Babel. Literally, this is probably referring to Babylon. That's Mm -hmm. their word for it. But also there's a joke in the name because the Hebrew word balal means confuse or confound. So it's trying to say there's some kind of cognate in the word they use for the place Babylon and the word for confused. It's like, yeah, that's why they call that place Babylon is because it's confused. Old Testament jokes right here. You know why they call it Pittsburgh? It's the pits. Yeah, there you go. It's the same spirit. (laughs) Or here's another one, Joe. Which U.S. state is um, is high in the middle and round on both ends. I have no idea. Oh, hi, oh. See, there you go. Oh, <laughs> man. But back to uh, ancient <laughs> Babylon. <laughs> oh, you got me there, Robert. I am slain. I die, Horatio. So back to the original uh, myth. So we've got this Genesis version, but there are also other versions of the same story. For example, one appears in the Book of Jubilees, which is a, a another ancient Jewish text that is sort of a retelling of a lot of the other Genesis stories. It's a, it's a retelling of the history of the Jewish people and their relationship with God. And it's sort mm-hmm. of like dictated by angels. 
And they give just a few extra details in the story. For example, in the Jubilees version, it says, And they began to build, and in the fourth week they made brick with fire, and the bricks served them for stone, and the clay with which they cemented them together was asphalt, which cometh out of the sea and out of the fountains of water in the land of Shinar. So it's given us a little more detail about, like, the technological origins of their construction methods. And more about the construction methods, they specify the size of the tower. And they built it. Forty and three years were they building. Its breadth was 203 bricks, and the height of a brick was the third of one. Its height amounted to 5,433 cubits and two palms, and the extent of one of the walls was 13 stades, and of the other 30 stades. So if Google's unit conversion program uh, of length uh, of the length of a cubit is right, this means that the tower would have been about 8,150 feet tall. And to put that in uh, in, uh, in in terms of modern buildings, uh, the the Burj Khalifa in the United Arab, Arab Emirates is uh, 2,717 feet tall. So this would have dwarfed the the tallest building that uh, has has ever existed, the tallest structure that's ever existed. By a, a substantial degree. Now, I wonder how this compares to the alternate designs for the Colossus of Chicago we talked about in our uh, oh yeah in our, in our uh, Chicago World's For Fair episode. Remember the other proposed structures mm-hmm. before they had the Ferris wheel? They were going to be thousands and thousands of feet tall, mini Burj Khalifas. Yes, I don't know. It'd be interesting to go back. Super fans can listen and <laughs> tell us what we said. Right. Uh, and then also we get another detail in the Jubilees version about how God knocked the tower down in the end. So he didn't just scatter the people, but he crushed the tower. So it says, the Lord sent a mighty wind against the tower and overthrew it upon the earth. And behold, it was between Ashur and Babylon in the land of Shinar, and they called its name Overthrow. Oh, so it man. looks like we get another etiological legend there. There's some place that translates roughly to Overthrow, apparently. And saying, you know why we call it overthrow? Because it's where God knocked down the tower. Huh. It does put a totally different spin on the myth. Like on one level, he just he's like, what do I have to do to knock down this tower? I just have to confuse their languages. Snap of the fingers. It's done. It takes care of itself. Yeah. But in this version, he does that. And he's like, ah, heck, I'll knock it down, too. Why not? Right. I'm a giant toddler. Uh, so there are also some interesting parallels here where you've got uh, the Sumerian god Enki and one of his roles that has been discovered in, in recent decades is as the confuser of languages in Sumerian mythology. So I want to refer to a paper I came across by Samuel Noah Kramer, who is a 20th century Sumerian uh, history expert. And he wrote this paper called The Babel of Tongues, a Sumerian version in the Journal of the American Oriental Society. Now, this was from 1968, so this is not a new discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, he, but we do find that it, when it comes to studying the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. um, new research is, is a very relative term. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of like cutting-edge study of this. Uh, this. There was some new stuff at the time this came out, mm-hmm. though, because he had just recently gotten access to some new cuneiform tablets oh, yeah. that filled in the gaps in a previously known legend that uh, that that it had incomplete sections because of the deterioration of our sources. So he notes that the biblical scholar E.A. Spicer had demonstrated in his Anchor Bible commentary on Genesis that the Tower of Babel narrative likely had a cuneiform source, so another Mesopotamian source, going back to this other ancient Mesopotamian literature. And Kramer was trying to bolster this view given recent discoveries of his day uh, of clay fragments filling in this incomplete fragment from a Sumerian epic tale known as 
Inmerkar and the Lord of Arata. And the details of the narrative aren't especially important. Basically, it's about a conflict between two rulers or kings. One is Inmerkar, and he wants to get the king of Arata to submit to him and pay tribute of gold and gems. And there's one section known as the Golden Age Passage. And this is where an envoy from Arata is asked to deliver this sort of formalized statement. It's kind of like a hymn or a poem to his master. And this is Kramer's translation of the part that was already known when before these new tablet pieces were discovered. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was no snake. There was no scorpion. There was no hyena. There was no lion. There was no wild dog, no wolf. There was no fear, no terror. Man had no rival. In those days, the lands of Sabur and Hamazi, harmony-tongued Sumer, the great land of the decrees of Prince Ship Uri, the land having all that is appropriate, the land Martu resting in security, the whole universe, the people in unison to Enlil, and that's a Sumerian chief god, to Enlil in one tongue spoke. Then Adah the Lord, Adah the Prince, Adah the King, Inki, Adah the Lord, Adah the Prince, Adah the King, and repeats it again, Adah the Lord, Adah the Prince, Adah the King. There's a lot of repetition in these. Um, so that's what they had already. But then there was this new discovery that added in some new fragments. It went on to say, Inki, which is another Sumerian guard, the Lord of Abundance, whose commands are trustworthy, the Lord of Wisdom, who understands the land, the leader of the gods, endowed with wisdom, the Lord of Eridu, changed the speech in their mouths, brought contention into it, into the speech of man that until then had been one. So here's another version of the story of the confusion of tongues. Now, this one lacks a lot of detail. It doesn't say that humans were building a tower. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really give a rationale for Inki changing the languages that people spoke. It just says that people offered praise to Enlil in one tongue. They all spoke the same language. And then at some point, this great figure, Inki, brought contention into their languages and split the languages into different fragments. Now, Kramer notes a difference from the biblical account. Of course, in the biblical story, the gods confuse the speech of humankind because humankind is threatening to encroach into the heavens, which is the domain of the gods. And it's a conflict between uh, between God and the humans that leads to the confusion of tongues. But in the Sumerian version, as I was saying, there's nothing apparent that the humans did to have their speech confused. So uh, Kramer suggests that Enki confusing the tongues of humanity is a result of his rivalry with the other god of the Sumerian pantheon that's mentioned in the story, the big one, Enlil, rather than of a rivalry with humans. This is interesting because it makes me think about the differences very broadly uh, between worshiping uh, a pantheon of gods or a single god, between being polytheistic and monotheistic. Yeah. So if you just have one god, well, well let me take it from this direction. If you have multiple gods, then mm-hmm. it's possible that these gods don't get along, and then you're just left with the, the residual um, chaos of their turmoil in the same way. You might that, be an innocent bystander. Yeah, yeah, in, in a way that I think relates to modern experience, but even ancient experience, where, you know, what are you doing? You're just a, a normal person uh, trying to live your life. You're a farmer, you're a craftsman, you're a podcaster, whatever you are. <laughs> And the conflicts among the greats, among the kings, the governments, or the nations themselves, the the, the you have wages, no input. Yeah, you have no input, but then you still have to suffer what the wages of these conflicts. Yeah, 
but it's not a judgment thing. It's just that's how life works. But if it's a, a single God, then then who else is there? Like every every catastrophic event, every minor misfortune or blessing is or or you know positive effect is a is a blessing or a curse. It's all a direct communication with the divine being. Yeah, there there are definitely shades of that, I think, in the division between monotheism and polytheism. But one thing we see also in a lot of these ancient accounts is that the line between monotheism and polytheism is not quite such a stark division as one would expect. Mm-hmm. I think that there are shades of monotheism and shades of polytheism. Like in, in this ancient context, you may have seen a lot of cases where there is sort of a concept of a greater pantheon of gods, but maybe one god is strongly favored or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and or, or there is an idea that there are other heavenly beings, but you wouldn't call them god quite in the same way. Like you've got a chief god Who's the real God, but then there are also these other powers in heaven that aren't quite human. Yeah, you have these different angelic forces or uh, or on the opposite end, demonic forces. And then you have these intermediaries as well, such as, uh, you know, saints or in, in other modes of belief, ancestors mm-hmm. that can serve as uh, as, as uh, go-betweens for you and the hereafter. Yeah, so Kramer in 1968 in his paper actually has a really interesting speculation in a footnote about the difference in the motivation for the confusion of tongues between the Sumerian epic and the biblical account. And it sort of goes along with what you were saying, Robert. He he says, quote, The biblical storyteller was no doubt inspired to invent his moralistic explanation by the twofold aspect of the Babylonian ziggurat. And in just a minute, we're going to get into the role that ziggurats may have played in inspiring this story. But basically, a ziggurat is an ancient Mesopotamian structure, a big step pyramid with a flat top. And so he says that this may have been an explanation. He continues, uh, the one aspect is the high-rise, sky-reaching appearance of the structure in its prime that could be interpreted as a threat to the gods and their power. And the other thing, its melancholy and pathetic appearance when in a state of disrepair and collapse, which was not infrequent that could be viewed as a punishment by the angered gods or Yahweh for man's overreaching ambition. The Mesopotamian, on the other hand, far from viewing the ziggurat as an outgrowth of man's rivalry with and antagonism to the gods, actually deemed it to be a bond between heaven and earth, man and God, and attributed its ruin and decay to the inscrutable will of the gods and their incontestable decisions. So the different views of these cultures upon seeing, for example, a ruined ziggurat would be based on their different idea of what the ziggurat was for. If, if you're, say, a, a monotheistic Yahwist and you see a ruined ziggurat, you might not know that this is for the, the people who built it, that it's for some kind of positive connection they believe they have with the gods. Yeah, I mean, of course, we can think of plenty of examples of that, right? Where if you're, if you have someone outside of a religion looking in, yeah. and especially if they have their own religious viewpoints that they're using to make the judgment, then you can vastly misinterpret what something's for. Right. Like people saying, oh, look at the, look at those guys worshiping that Buddha, or, or look at that mighty church that they've built, um, you know, as a tribute to themselves. Like, yeah. it's easy. What's the difference between, uh, you know, the, the hubris of a cathedral and the hubris of, of this tower, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's definitely difficult to see the significance of religious artifacts from the outside if you don't make it an attempt to understand what they mean to the practitioners. Like to the Mesopotamians, these ziggurats wouldn't have been an assault on heaven. They were They were an attempt to connect and bond with and appease the heavens. But I guess it's time to look at the ziggurats themselves, right? So I, I would say I, I don't want to 
you to come away from this episode with the impression that, oh, the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat and they just saw ziggurats and that's where the story came from, because I'm not so certain. But it has been widely speculated that the Tower of Babel story could have been inspired by sites of ziggurats. And that may be true to some extent. I, I don't know what you think about this, Robert. Well, I guess I'm of two minds on this. Like if I were to definitely, uh, you know, get behind an idea of there being a literal tower that inspired the tales, then I would probably line up with a ziggurat explanation. Mm -hmm. But we kind of get into that area we've gotten to in uh, in the discussion of fossils and uh, and dinosaurs and dragons, right? Did people dream up dragons because they saw a triceratops fossil? Right. Or griffins? Yeah. And we we argued in that episode of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind that, uh, well, you you can't just say that nobody had creative energy in in the old days, that they weren't capable of creating myths out of other things than just Mm -hmm. very literal sights and sounds. Yeah, and I don't think it is wrong to try to look for things that could have literally inspired the creation of ancient uh, of tropes in ancient literature, such Mm -hmm. as monsters or structures or things like that. It's not that I think that is a worthless project, because in many cases it may be that these things inspire people. But I just think we should never forget the role of creative imagination in creating literature. Yeah, I mean, it, there were towers around, there were ziggurats around, and you can imagine someone creating the story about some people who built a tower. Mm-hmm. And you don't actually need that to be a, a literal place and a literal tower for mm-hmm. that kind of story to, to come together. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so let's look at the ziggurats. So you've probably seen pictures of ziggurats before. They're these huge ancient Near Eastern stepped pyramids with a flat top. So one thing you can do if you haven't actually seen one is Google one, but let's say you can't Google one. Picture the pyramids. Surely you've seen that of, of ancient mm-hmm. Egypt. And then take the top, the pointy top off. So they got a flat top. And then, uh, and then give them a couple of stairways that are going up to the top. And some things would probably originally have been on the top. I think a lot of the replicas or ruins that exist today don't have much on the top. But back then, there may have been a temple or a shrine to a god such as Marduk. And uh, it may have also been thought of as the dwelling place of the god at the top of the ziggurat. Like the god comes down and sleeps on top of the ziggurat or something like that. Yeah, I think it's very helpful to, again, think of the ziggurat in terms of a holy mountain. It is an artificial holy mountain. And so since we know we have these things in the ancient Near Eastern context, plenty of people have posited that the story of the Tower of Babel may have been inspired by the site of a ziggurat or the ruins of a ziggurat. And there's one candidate in particular that often comes up, right? Yes, the specific candidate here is uh, the Babylonian Tower Temple north of the Marduk Temple, uh, which in uh, Babylonian was called uh, Bab Elu, or Gate of God. Yeah, and the ziggurat itself was known as the uh, Etim Anki, or the House of the Foundation Platform of Heaven and the Underworld. I've also seen it translated as House of the Foundation Platform of Heaven and Earth. Uh, and one thing to keep in mind about ancient ziggurats versus the existing ruins and replicas is... Uh, is that the ancient versions were probably more beautiful, <laughs> yeah. like generally more decorated. For example, with this one particular place, the Etim and Anki, when Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king, came through and restored this ziggurat, he covered the top with blue glazed bricks and other types of decorations some gold and things like that. And the image of the ziggurat I have in my mind is it's the modern version, right? It's what either the replicas you would see in Iraq or the actual ruins of some previous ziggurats that still exist to some extent, 
generally when you think about them, they're the exact same color as the sand all around them mm-hmm. and sort of the same color as the sky. And this tends to have a kind of brutal effect on the eye, at least to me. I, I don't know how you feel about this, Robert, but it's like this massive, dense, colorless edifice is almost like it was specifically programmed to make you awed, but not in a good way, to fill you with this kind of crushing dread. It, it's stifling to the mind, and I think that's just because of the lack of color. I, I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, but when I see recreations of the same structures with color and decoration added, it doesn't have that effect on me at all. It's more like seeing these other types of ancient buildings that would be fascinating and beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I, I can get that. It's it's kind of like when you look at uh, ancient statues, and all you have are the like the the the, the pale marble and the featureless uh, faces and the blank eyes, yeah. and it gives you this stoic sense of of you know hauntedness. Yeah. Uh, but of course, in many cases, uh, statues were painted. They were mm-hmm. you know that they they had color, they had pigments, they had eyes, and it would have been a totally different experience to the contemporary viewer of such a work. When you see these ancient Assyrian statues, mm-hmm. I, I think about, think about seeing these in New York. Ancient Assyrian statues that have carvings. They're not just statues, but they're like walls with relief carvings mm-hmm. that have all these people in them, like these men with the huge braided beards. And when I often think about those statues, they seem very scary and ghostly to me because they don't have paint on them anymore, mm-hmm. or some versions don't. And so the eyes are just blank. They have these eyes that you can see the rounded edges of them, but they don't have pupils or any colors in them. So it just looks like these gray ghost men marching toward you. Uh, but when you see the painted versions or the restored painted versions, of course, the eyes have eye colors and then there's like whites of the eyes and pupils and it looks very different it looks just more like art you know of people in the tower of babel archaeology history and cuneiform texts a.r george uh the author takes an exhaustive and i mean exhaustive look (laughs) at modern architectural interpretations for a babylonian tower yeah and i believe this article is actually a review of a book on the subject right Mm -hmm. yeah um so so what what does he come up with? He's talking about the idea that the Tower of Babel would have been inspired by this Babylonian ziggurat design or temple design. Yeah, so he he looked uh one of the sources uh this paper discusses is the uh the Nabopolassar cylinder. This was found in Iraq in 1921 and it was named for the 7th century BCE founder of the Neo-Babylonian Empire whose exploits it details. Mm-hmm. And it provides some details concerning uh uh, Napopolassar's uh, completion of Assyrian king Esharaddin, he would have been 680 through 669 BCE, of his earlier ziggurat project. Okay. This was a baked brick tower base of 91 uh, meters squared. This matches up with the timeline uh, modeled on an even older structure uh, of the same base area. Now, that's something I want to get into in just a minute, but there you see the idea of uh, structures being built on top of one another. Yeah in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, but it also mentions here, so this is a baked brick tower, which is part of the story of the Tower of Babel. It's saying, hey, none of those sun-baked bricks anymore. Now now we're firing these things to make them really strong. Yeah, so th- this is one example of the, the kind of buildings that... Uh that, that historians and archaeologists uh, and sort of myth dissectors will will take a look at. And like I said earlier, you get into the problem, though, 
where you're you're taking the myth and you're kind of chasing around history with the myth, like myth on a stick approach, uh-huh. uh, which is a, a fascinating exercise and can certainly be illuminating. But you're still, in a sense, kind of putting the cart before the horse, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's what we were saying earlier. It's not that I think it's a bad project to try to look for physical inspirations for stories from history and, and mythology. It's just that always don't forget we could have plenty of creative imagination in here. It's not like the author had to see something literally that they went and wrote down, and now we have to figure out what the thing they saw was. Right. And in terms of just large building structures, large towers, though we've been making these for some time, you can you can look at Egypt's various pyramids from the 3rd millennium BCE, of which there are many, including both the ones that immediately pop into your mind. And indeed, uh, there still stands the Ziggurat of Ur from uh, 2100 BCE, uh, Sardinia's uh, Naragus Santu Antini, this was from 1600 BCE, and the Ziggurat of Dur Kuragalzu from uh, the 14th century BCE. And these are just a few to mention. So um, I, I don't want to make it sound like this was an age where there was only ever one tower. Right. That, that no, and, and these are just the large uh, structures that survived to us today. Certainly, you could get the idea of a tower, and that could inspire a myth about a tower mm-hmm. uh, based on a much smaller construction. Yeah. Now, I want to look at another aspect of ancient Near Eastern architecture, or at least ancient Near Eastern civic design, that is relevant, though I don't want to say that this is necessarily what inspired the story. I just think it's kind of interesting. So imagine you're the child of a trader, and you visit an ancient Mesopotamian city with your parents, and the walls are these mud brick structures, but they're huge. They're bigger than anything you normally see. It's also powerful. It's rather overwhelming. And then you leave with your, your parents and go trade in many other places. And you don't come back for many years. But then you revisit the same city again when you're very old. You might, you just might notice something odd. Is the city higher up off the surrounding desert than it was when you visited all those years ago? Hmm. Or is that just your imagination? Not necessarily. So ancient Mesopotamian architecture is characterized by the slow accumulation of what's known as tells, like T-E-L or T-E-L-L, meaning hills or mounds. And uh, an ancient Mesopotamian city had these buildings, like we were talking about, made out of sun-baked mud bricks, which were useful, but they were prone to fairly rapid deterioration in the elements. And as these structures deteriorated over time, they were replaced, but not necessarily removed. And so the trampled remains of old and demolished mud brick structures became the foundation for new structures. So as we cycled through generations of human architecture in these cities, the ground level of the city rose up. So in a sense, not only were human buildings growing taller with the ages of Mesopotamian city life, But the city itself was rising up out of the earth. And I just wonder, would an ancient writer have been able to notice such a thing? I'm not saying they would, because it's definitely a slow process that takes place over hundreds or thousands of years. Then again, if you come upon a city in the desert where everything else is pretty flat around, and suddenly just the city part of the city is on this mound risen up out of the desert, I don't know, that's interesting. Yeah, and of course it's very poetic as well. Just the idea of, I mean, civilization quite literally physically rising up. Yeah, and I would like to emphasize that in the biblical account, it doesn't actually call the Tower of Babel the Tower of Babel. That phrase is our you know modern way of describing the story. Mm-hmm. The phrase in the original story is the city and the tower. Ah, yes. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at uh, a few different uh, attempts to, in in varying ways, make the tower real. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day, but let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian. Premium cocktails on demand. Is getting gas at Exxon burning a hole in your wallet? What if I told you you can easily earn cash back while you fill up? Introducing Drop, the app that turns every fill up into a reward. With Drop, you'll earn points to get free gift cards every time you fill up your tank. Download Drop and use code DROP66 to instantly receive $5 in points to jumpstart your savings journey. Don't miss out on turning your gas expenses into something rewarding. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. All right, we're back. Robert, there are some awesome paintings of the Tower of Babel story. I, I love paintings of biblical stories in general. That's one of my favorite genres of ancient paintings, mm-hmm. especially the ones that are paintings of Old Testament stories. But uh, But the Tower of Babel paintings are great, and some of the best ones have got to be the ones by uh, Peter Bruegel, right? Yes, uh, Peter Bruegel the Elder uh, in particular, 16th century Flemish artist. And he actually created three different interpretations of the tower. Two survived, uh, both oil paintings on wood, and then there's a lost painting that was on ivory. Oh, I'd like to see that. Well, I, everyone would, but it's lost, Joe. If you find it, <laughs> let, it let us know. 
Um, so he, <laughs> the elephants came and took it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a, a justice in that. Uh, so, so we're left with two interpretations. And I think I had one of these on my wall in college. Like, these are famous works of art. Mm-hmm. And it's the type of art, unlike some things I had on my wall in college, this is exa- I would put this on my wall today. It's, yeah. it's, it's that great a painting. Because you, uh, the, the two that survive also play off each other in unique ways, as we'll discuss. Yeah. So the first one is, uh, is often referred to as the Great Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. And in this image, we have this, uh, this sort of half-completed tower rising up out of the landscape. You've got uh, the, the ocean visible in the lower right hand. In the lower left hand, there's a king surrounded by some workers. You see tiny ant-like people scaling uh, uh, the edifice, working on it. And the whole thing is clearly inspired by Roman architecture. Mm-hmm. So instead of looking like a ziggurat, uh, out of ancient Babylon, it instead looks, it reminds one of the Roman Colosseum. It's got the, arches, yeah. Yeah, it's like if the Roman Colosseum, uh, like mated with a ziggurat, you might get this <laughs> result. I also love, uh, it's got this quality that I always really enjoy in paintings in that it's, I don't know what you call this. There are lots of, lots of little details going on all around it. I, I mm-hmm. guess you might call this busyness. Uh, but it's not just busyness. It's something about the, the fact that there are all these little people doing their own thing far away. Yeah, I mean, it works on two levels, right? Because on one hand, it's a busy as, town. Yeah, <laughs> on one hand, it is busy town, and it's just huh. finding cool things going on, and your imagination is just stoked by all of these little details. But then on the other, of course, uh, the, the Flemish uh, masters were were masters of their craft. Yeah. And, and nothing was just thrown in, uh, you know, uh, half slap and dilly dally. Like there's a there's a symbolism at play. There's a purpose at play in play. And uh, and individuals like Bruegel were attempting to convey certain ideas and messages, at least to the informed uh, viewers of the piece. Now, the original story in the Bible does not tell you that there's any particular king overseeing the construction of the tower, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that later readers didn't sort of supplement that information and come up with a king to be the the guy in charge of this evil tower enterprise, right? Yeah, indeed. We have a king in the lower left-hand corner, as we mentioned, and uh, and many interpret this as being King Nimrod. Yeah, King Nimrod, who the Bible says was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Yeah, Nimrod the hunter. Um, and so that's 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 a potential read on on this this painting. Now I'm going to dive in a little deeper on this painting. The, the other the other painting is the. The, the little tower of Babel, and it's called that because it's a smaller work. Okay. And uh, uh, but let's start with this one, and uh, I will include images of both these paintings on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com in case you want to compare and look yourself. So I was looking at a a, a work by author S. A. Mansbach titled Peter Bruegel's Tower of Babel, and uh, as the author points out, the uh, the artist here is not really telling the story of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> He's not, he's not showing, like, in terms of the action, mm-hmm. it's just people working on the tower and a king talking to some people. They, they, you don't see language splintered. You don't see no. a tower falling down. You don't see God coming down with his holy troops to dish out some, uh, some dialect. I don't even see well-baked mud bricks and slime for mortar. No. And it's, again, not completely clear that it's, it's Nimrod. Now, but prior to, to Bruegel, you had uh, people like uh, Flavius Josephus wrote about Nimrod in uh, Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, and this was first century CE. 
Uh, and there's a whole story about Nimrod building this tower as vengeance over the great flood. Whoa. Yeah. Like he, w- he wanted to get back at God? Yeah, it's like God just wrecked all this havoc. So he's like, all right, I'm coming for you, God. I'm building the tower. Now, wait, was it just like, was it like spite against God? Or was it like he was literally coming for him to wage war against him? I took him to mean spite. But now I, but I really like the idea of him coming after him. I mean, yeah. that's pretty... Ooh, that's that's some action yeah. hero. Uh, like, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, that's like Bruce Willis in uh, in Die Hard, kind of. Right. Another Bil- tower story. <laughs> Building uh, a causeway <laughs> to the heavens. Yeah. yeah. So um, he builds this thing in Babylon, and uh, in, in the original, and Bruegel may or may not have read the text. He might have taken this detail from other artistic interpretations of the tower, uh, or it might it might not be a, a nod to Nimrod at all. So uh, the author of the article, Mansbach, uh, here, he cites Zygmunt Wozbinski, uh, who argues that Bruegel deviates from past traditions and shows the tower as rounded, reflecting on modern urban design trends. So they're not building the tower, perhaps, but rebuilding it in the form of a Babylon of the West or a Roman Babylon. Mm. And in this case, he argues the king that we're seeing is not Nimrod, but Alexander the Great. Mm. And this is, this is an interesting argument because it does get into the idea of like it's not just an illustration that he's doing. He's creating a work of art mm-hmm. that is making some contemporary points, utilizing the symbology of an old story. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought so much about the idea of the tower being round. Now, again, in the original story, it doesn't say what the shape yeah. of the tower is in the Genesis account in other uh, in other later mythological adaptations. It might. But definitely, if you see it in medieval art, like I've seen an ancient mm-hmm. uh not ancient, a, a medieval painting of the Tower of Babel where it's just a tall rectangle. It looks like a church church bell tower. Yeah. <laughs> now, Mansbach, he thinks that this this reading is a, a bit of an overread. Uh, the, the idea that this is Alexander the Great and it's re, the rebuilding of, of Babel and Babel of the West. Mm-hmm. But he does think that Bruegel was still clear, certainly imparting a, a different meaning to humanists and progressives of the time, to learned viewers. So the king might not be Nimrod or Alexander, but contemporary ruler Philip II of Spain. Ah. Yeah, who had an ill reputation with his Flemish subjects. <laughs> so Spanish domination was pretty harsh at the time, especially on Flemish liberal Catholics and Protestants. And Philip II enhanced the powers of the Inquisition in 1556, uh, who waged a campaign of suppression against Antwerp's Calvinists. And Philip II, on top of this, spoke neither French nor Dutch, uh, further deepening the divide. Mm-hmm. So there's this disagreement, there's this clash of cultures, and it's uh, it's accentuated by the uh, the linguistic differences in play. Interesting. So we've looked at the the Great Tower of Babel by uh, by Bruegel here, but there's another version that you mentioned earlier, this lesser tower, this, the Little Tower of Babel, and I've got a little image of it here. Yes, <laughs> in our uh, in our outline. This is different, right? It's not just a smaller version of the same painting. It's fundamentally different. It's got stuff missing, like where's the king? Yeah, where's the the sprawling city? And the the, the crazy thing, too, you can glance at it and both just look like incomplete towers. But the second tower is about two-thirds complete, perhaps. Yeah, it's a lot more along the way. You, You just see fewer people in it, and it's more close to done. Yeah, and there's a there's a religious procession winding its way upward. Sheep are grazing uh, in the distance. Uh, in fact, they're grazing in areas previously devoted in the former painting to utility buildings. Hmm. So, 
arguably what we see here is a utopian vision of what is possible for humanity when it is free from tyranny. Again, the king is gone. There's no king in this painting. Oh, man, that, that would mean the Tower of Babel would be a very odd selection of story to predict a genuine utopian vision. Well, but if you're a humanist, uh, oh, maybe I see. not so. Okay, yeah. like reappropriating the story. Exactly, yeah. So there is a hopefulness to this painting. Uh, the works of humanity in a state of grace, about to transcend the limits of of not only what we've accomplished before, but the limits of the frame, the limits of the the actual canvas uh, that, uh, or the you know, or the wood that he's working on here, mm-hmm. um, the the limits of the artist's vision, even like this is a tower of Babel that may be completed, if you know kings and bureaucracy and all the the, the negative um, aspects of the world stay out of the affair. Right. Mansbach says this. Quote, in some, the Flemish painter has produced in this panel a suggestive image of an ideal state, a symbolic communal hive rising heavenward from a bucolic landscape and bustling port. And he has shown us the greatness and power of human productivity made possible in the absence of a tyrant's hubristic will. The artist has given his contemporaries and us a glimpse of the humanist's ideal city, a terrestrial utopia. In a word, Bruegel has provided a visual metaphor of mankind in a state of grace. Babel has been remedied. Whoa. So there you go. Uh, Again, that's just some added uh, layers of interest to just two phenomenal paintings. So I want to look at one more great work of art depicting the Tower of Babel, and that is an engraving by Gustave Doré known as the Confusion of Tongues, and this was made in uh, 1865, I think. Uh, it was, uh, 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 I've seen it described as a woodcut or an engraving. Now, this is the, the image that I think was referenced in the childhood illustration that I mentioned earlier, that, oh, I, yeah? that I grew up with, uh, in that this looks very much like just a, a spiral road up into the heavens. Yes. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, Dore apparently based his design on the minaret of the great mosque at Samara. This is a 9th century mosque located in Samara, Iraq. And uh, it's still there to this day. Only the outer wall and the minaret remain as the, uh, as the mosque itself was destroyed in 1278. Now, I really love this. I, I love Dore's version. Dore always sort of does it for me. He's got these great illustrations of the divine comedy that are just burned oh, in yeah, my brain. Tremendous. I want to talk about one of those in a second. But the, uh, man, the tower here, I said earlier, I think that none of the traditional artistic representations match what I had in my mind as a kid, meaning a tower that literally goes up to where you can't see it anymore, so mm-hmm. straight into space. Yeah, that's where this one really uh, is different from the, the Bruegel images, because the Bruegel is, uh, towers are incomplete. Yes. You see where they break off and there's sky above them. This thing just vanishes into the heavens. Yeah, well, here you can see the tower has it's further along, but this is the moment of confusion. It's not like the king lording over the construction saying, mm-hmm. look what good work we're doing. Here, it's surrounded by people who appear to be in anguish, and you can guess that they're in anguish because they've had their languages confused and they can't understand one another anymore. There's a man in the foreground reaching up to the heavens with like a a, a plaintive kind of posture, like, why would you do this to me? Yeah, he's kind of going, Stella, Uh, (laughs) what's happening? Uh, and, and of course, it it has that great black and white pathos that you see in in Dore's work. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite illustrations of his is from his illustration of the Divine Comedy in the scene in Canto 7 when Dante and Virgil 
are passing by the demon Plutus, who's also the, you know, Greco-Roman god of wealth. Uh, but he's uttering this string of nonsense words. Plutus is saying, Pape Satan, Pape Satan Alepe, <laughs> which is at least in, in the medieval Italian of the story, it's nonsense. The Dante's Pilgrim doesn't understand what he's saying. Uh, but Virgil apparently does understand what Plutus is saying and interprets his words as a threat. And so it, it makes me recall this idea of the confused tongues, maybe uh, even confused tongues in the heavenly realms. Huh. Like, would they speak a different language in hell than they would in heaven or on earth? Hmm. Yeah, we're we're get, we're almost getting into speaking in tongues territory here. We'll have to, but we'll have to save that rabbit hole for another day. I just wanted to add one interesting modern interpretation that I came across on the internet the other day, and it's by artist and animator Katsuhiro Otomo mm-hmm. and collage artist uh, Kosuke Kawamura. And this is a version of uh, of Bruegel's interpretation of the tower, but it's got a cutaway, so it's like those old. Books, you know, the picture books where they'd have a cross section of a oh, man yeah. war, mm-hmm. and they've got a cutaway of the tower where you can see the inside, and I, I think it's great. This is worth looking up. Nice. He's, he's sort of extrapolating on the design that uh, Bruegel's gone with, with for the exterior, and yes, trying to imagine what it would look like inside. Yeah. Nice. And apparently, one of these artists that I just mentioned had something to do with Akira. So, huh? Nice. All right, well, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to look at some, uh, I guess you could say, thought experiments on the dimensions of the tower, if it, uh, if it were to exist. Yes, and then also at the confusion of language. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day, but let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian. Premium cocktails on demand. Tired of wandering the aisles at Walgreens trying to find the best deals? Well, we've got something that'll make your shopping experience a whole lot sweeter. Introducing Drop, the app that rewards you with free gift cards just for doing your everyday shopping. Whether it's groceries, toiletries, or your favorite snacks. With Drop, every purchase earns you points towards fantastic rewards. Download the Drop app now. Use code DROP55 when you sign up to get $5 in points. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we're back. So, as we've discussed, the biblical account itself is vague, uh, so you have to go to these other accounts, such as uh, the, the Jubilee, uh, f- for even a starting point, if you're going to try and put numbers behind what the Tower of Babel consists of. Yeah, and the Book of Jubilees does put numbers on it. I, I wonder if it's the only one. Other accounts may put numbers on it as well. I, I believe it's the, the prime one. Yeah. It, 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 certainly, if, if you're going to go for an ancient text that has numbers, that's where you go. And then you start busting out down those cubits and making them into meters or feet. You know? So, yeah, if you want dimensions, crack open your jubilees. Yeah. Now, one thing that the as we mentioned that the, the biblical account does say that they're reaching unto heaven. And that's the thing that defies measurement. Unless heaven is orbital access to angelic space aliens, <laughs> in which case we're talking a space elevator, and we'd uh, we'd need it to reach a geostationary orbit of 35,800 kilometers or 22,245 miles. Uh, that's now, a big tower. That's a big tower. And even today, we're waiting on carbon nanotechnology to catch up with the dream. Man, I've heard some criticisms of even that speculation. Yeah. It's like uh, even car- carbon nanotubes are not going to save us. Some people think that building a space elevator is really just impossible from a materials perspective. Hmm. So we... We're still trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, violate the the uh, the, the pieces of the earth. Uh, how 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 much we can bake that stone uh-huh. to make it serve our purposes here. Yeah, maybe if it's well baked enough. Yeah. So your earlier earlier attempts to guess the tower's height um, are based in uh, you know older and Western view of history, uh, one in which uh, such wonders of the Bible were a matter of actual history and could conceivably be uncovered and found. Uh huh. And later attempts were more in the spirit of a thought experiment. So I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, but if you crush the cubits, depending <laughs> on, you know, where you're getting your figures from, uh, your tower height uh, figures might hit any of the following. Okay. okay. 695 feet. That doesn't sound like it reaches the heavens. Well, it's still big. Still yeah. big. 1.3 miles high. Okay. 1.6. Okay. 3.6. Mm-hmm. 4.6. Okay. And then 8 miles. So at this point, you're in territory with the birds. Yeah, but but you're uh, at, and the thing is, at eight miles high, of course, you're still far short of that uh, that space elevator that I mentioned earlier. And again, the uh, the Burj Khalifa is uh, two thousand seven hundred seventeen feet tall, and that's roughly half a mile. So as I said, all of this is just a matter of trying to translate old systems of measurement into new. 
Yep. Uh, however, here's another approach, and this uh, this came to us uh, by late material scientist and author uh, J. E. Gordon. He wrote a book back in the day titled "Structures or Why Things Don't Fall Down," uh, <laughs> and it's it's a wonderful book. You can uh, I, I was looking through it on on Google Books. Uh-huh. Uh, it's out there in, in various formats. You can pick up a used copy really easily. Uh, and he's he's cited in a, in a uh, he's often cited for his comments on the tower. His book is not primarily about the tower, but he touches on it a couple of times. Uh, he doesn't go all in, but he does share this basic idea. Quote, now, brick and stone weigh about 120 pounds per cubic foot or 2000 uh, uh, kilograms uh, per meter. And the crushing strength of these materials is generally rather better than 6,000 pounds per square inch. Elementary arithmetic shows us that a tower with parallel walls could have been built to a height of 7,000 feet, that's 2 kilometers, 1.3 miles, before the bricks at the bottom would be crushed. Huh. So but, that's higher than I would have expected. Yeah. But he also points out that, yeah, with a broad enough base... You could have built as high as Mount Everest. I mean, if you again, this is thought experiment land. If right. you're just saying sky's the limit, I got this enormous plane, and somehow I can get the materials there. Sure, you could build at least as high as Mount Everest at uh, twenty nine thousand uh, twenty eight feet, or five point uh, four miles, eight kilometers. So the uh, the pyramid approach. Yeah, just if you have enough space and enough slave labor to do it. He says, "quote." Thus, a simple tower, preferably with a broad base and tapered toward the top, could well have been built to such a height that the men of Shinar would have run short of oxygen and had difficulty in breathing before the brick walls were crushed beneath their own dead weight. Nice. So there you go, a little physics breakdown on the Tower of Babel and what would what was conceivably or even inconceivably possible. So, Robert, you're telling me they really did build a tower to that. <laughs> Just, just, it's just an idea of what's possible. <laughs> you know, at that point, if you're going to go ahead and build one of those things, why not just import a mountain? You could just cut off a mountain at the base and drag it over to where you need it. Yeah, but you're not really, it's not really flipping off God properly, right? Because the whole thing is, this is a mountain you built. So you're going with the uh, angry Nimrod interpretation here where he, he's got spite because of the flood. I do like it. I kind of want this to be an Aronofsky uh, film, you know? Okay. The, the angry Russell Crowe Nimrod who's <laughs> on a, a mission of vengeance against God. At the top of the tower. Yeah. Are you not threatened? <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right. Well, at this point, we should we should get into the language. Okay, uh, so this is going to be the last thing we discuss here today. But yeah, the the idea of the confusion of tongues is clearly central to the Babel myth, right? The, it's that uh, it's this etiological purpose, like we, mm-hmm. like we discussed. It's an obvious fact of nature that people speak different languages in different places. Why is that? Why doesn't everybody speak the same language? It would be so much easier if everybody spoke the same language. So how come that isn't the case? Indeed, that's the basic question. Like, what? Why do we have all these languages to begin with? Yeah. Uh, let Let's try and sort of answer that question, the same question that's being asked and answered, and then answered by the myth, but with our modern understanding. So, according to the Linguistic Society of America, humans currently have roughly six thousand nine hundred and nine distinct languages. Each of these falls into one of two hundred and fifty language families. For instance, the uh, Indo-European language group uh, includes some two hundred languages. And they're not evenly spread out either. Right. Europe has 230, while Asia has 2,197. Papua New Guinea alone has 832. 
What? Yeah, and I know what you you might be thinking. I say, like, all right, so they're kind of similar dialects. Yeah, they surely have just just eight hundred thirty two. Uh, shades of the same color, but no, these are in 30 to 40 distinct language groups. So it, it just goes to show it's not, it's not just based on how far people are spread. Mm-hmm. There are a number of other factors. Now, it's obvious for, to some extent that languages change over time, and you can probably guess that new languages are produced generally not by people planning out a language, sitting down and doing the Esperanto kind yeah, of thing. Or Klingon or, or right. uh, Dothraki, what have you. Right. Though created languages do exist, they're not mm-hmm. generally spoken as people's native, uh, native tongue. Lang- languages evolve, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, in the roots of realizing this go back uh, to the rough observations of earlier man. So you take Greek and Latin, for instance, they show similarities. And this led uh, many to assume that Latin came from Greek, uh-huh. but it didn't. Both emerged from uh, from older Indo-European tongues, uh, perhaps according to, to some theorist, Indo-Hittite. Huh. Now, other similar languages were often dismissed as the same tongue. So, for instance, the Romans uh, often considered just all bar- barbarians spoke barbarian, when, of course, right. you had various groups and various languages in play. And by the Middle Ages, there was an increased Western interest in language, but this often entailed uh, such doomed ventures as the attempt to root all European tongues in Hebrew, and Hebrew is not directly related to any of them because it's a Semitic language. Huh, yeah. So I imagine that was a religiously motivated quest. Exactly. Kind of like taking your myth on a stick and, you know, running around through history. Right. So language changes over time, sometimes fairly rapidly and in many ways. Uh, just consider how different English is today compared to a few centuries ago with the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to have a translation of it, really, to read it, or, or a proper understanding of this older version of English. Yeah. And yet, on the other hand, you have uh, languages like Japanese, which has apparently changed very little uh, in a thousand years. Now, isn't that an interesting problem? Mm-hmm. Like, why do some languages change faster than others? Yeah, in, indeed. And then you have to realize, well, there there's not just one change. There are all these different changes. So there's uh, lexical change, phonetic and uh, phonological change, spelling changes, semantic changes, uh, syntactic changes. And on top of this, there's this concept of linguistic drift, both short-term unidirectional drift and long-term cyclic drift. Uh-huh. So we, we might have to have Christian uh, jump in on a future episode because I know he's very interested in, in linguistic studies. Uh-huh. Uh, but suffice to say that large-scale linguistic shifts often occur in response to social, economic, and political pressures. So invasion, displacement, colonization, um, you know, enslavement. The history books are full of examples. Uh, new technologies also require new words and new ways of talking to each other. Mm-hmm. But uh, the breakup of language is more complicated than you might think. So you might think that if speaker of language A and speaker of language B can understand each other, then they speak the same tongue. But this isn't always the case. And in some cases, speaker B can understand speaker A, but not the other way around. Hmm. So to come back to the Tower of Babel and the the confusion of tongues here, Mm -hmm. uh, is an instantaneous splintering of language possible? Eh, Not really. No, not outside of some sort of magic or perhaps crazy ancient alien technology scheme, (laughs) right, where they're like zapping language centers of the brain. 
But certainly, if you don't interpret the Tower of Babel story too literally, you could say that God just simply did something else to displace people and cease the building of the tower with cataclysms, war, etc., and that these traumas and displacements are what splintered language in a way that matches up with our understanding. Yeah, I think this will go along with something I want to get into in just a minute when I look at, uh, at an interesting article about this that I came across. It makes an interesting bit of sense, doesn't it? When you, when you think of the tower as a means of reaching God or technological greatness, the displacement and spread of human civilization leads to the birth of numerous languages, cultures, and modes of thinking that make such unity, such vision, that kind of humanist dream of, uh, of Rugal the Elder. It makes it just incredibly difficult to accomplish, now, as we see in every corner of our world today. Right. Now, first I want to look at this article that I found that I thought was interesting about the idea of the evolution of language and, and how that happens, um, and also comparisons between the way languages evolve and the way organisms evolve. But also we should keep in mind to come back to the idea that what if the confusion of tongues has benefits as well? That's true. Now, first, uh, I, I just wanted to look at this interesting article from uh, PLOS Biology in 2008 by John Whitfield that was called Across the Curious Parallel of Language and Species Evolution. Uh, now, this this wasn't a study. This was like a feature article that was talking about some ongoing research at the time. I, I thought that was pretty cool. So the author, John Whitfield, has, um, it starts off by talking about how in 1837, Charles Darwin wrote a letter to his sister where he talked about the ideas of this linguist named Sir John Herschel. Now, Herschel wasn't just a linguist. He was a polymath. He did all kinds of stuff. But Herschel had a thesis about language, and the thesis was languages, the languages that exist today were descended from a common ancestor. Now, the idea of a common descent of languages, I think it seems fairly intuitive to us now, but it encountered problems in the 19th century, and one of which was uh, that the evolution of Earth's diverse languages, as different as they were, would make the Earth much older than people generally believed it to be at the time for religious reasons, such as uh, Bishop Usher's biblical chronology, which, you know, made the Earth about six to 10,000 years old, right? So by Darwin's time, uh, linguists already had some success tracing the genealogies of languages. So for, it was clear, for example, that many of the languages of Western Europe, such as, such as French, uh, Spanish, and Italian, had origins in ancient Latin. That's not even that hard to observe, right? Mm -hmm. you, you might imagine just sort of figuring this out by looking at the languages themselves. But one could also see the interbreeding of languages with, uh, with different ancestors. For example, you've got modern English. This has a strong base in Germanic languages, but you also can see that it clearly has input from Romance languages like French and Latin and Spanish as well. It's also fairly clear how this usually happened since we had textual records reflecting changes in language use over time. So the basic principle was descent with modification. People pass on their languages to the next generation, but with each generation, small changes creep in. New words appear, old words fall out of use or become pronounced differently. New grammar rules start to come into use. And eventually enough of these changes accumulate that it would be difficult for a person speaking the ancient parent language to understand a person speaking the modern descendant language, that they would talk to each other and they wouldn't get it. And so Darwin started to wonder, I wonder if new species could evolve by descent with modification the same way languages do. And now modern linguists have quantitative analytical tools that can help them understand how languages change over time. And you can use very similar tools to investigate changes in genomes over time. So a lot of this article then ends up 
comparing genetic change or genomic change to language change. What are, what are the points of similarity and what are the points of difference? Um, and so uh, Whitfield quotes an evolutionary biologist named Mark Pagel of the University of Reading, who says languages are extraordinarily like genomes. We think that they could be very that there could be very general laws of lexical evolution to rival those of genetic evolution. So there are ways in which uh, language evolution and genomic evolution are similar. There are going to be other ways that they're different, and we should acknowledge that in a minute. But uh, w- one way is that the most basic or most important components change the slowest. So in biology, this is going to be genes that are used constantly by nearly all organisms. One example would be genes involved in protein synthesis. You've got to do this all the time. So they just change very slowly. And for this reason, they can be used to trace genomic relationships way deep into history. And in linguistic, this would be the words you use all the time, like pronouns and numbers. Mm -hmm. If you think about the way languages change, if the language is going to be changing over time, what are the things that are most likely to have discontinuity from the way your parents spoke? It's going to be like less common sayings or new expressions or something like that. Gotcha. Another parallel he talks about is that the uh, varying rates of evolution in uh, both languages in, in genomes, uh, that they, they can alter over time. So uh, in biology, it looks like that there is generally a slow and steady rate of change in a line of descent that is then suddenly punctuated by occasionally brief periods of more rapid change. This might happen, for example, when you get various populations of the same species that are suddenly cut off from one another and unable to interbreed and forced into different living conditions. So you might think about our episode on the London underground mosquito. Right. You've got the surface Culex pipiens mosquito, and part of that population appears to break off into a subgroup that gets trapped into the London underground, which selects for different traits. You've got to like the dark. You've got to really have a taste for rat and human blood instead of bird blood. Uh, and eventually the version of Culex pipiens that's, uh, that's accumulating these different adaptations is a different species within a surprisingly short amount of time, and they can no longer successfully breed and produce fertile offspring with one another, with the surface population. It looks like a similar kind of thing happens with languages. Populations that speak them accumulate small changes over long periods of time, but there may be more rapid speciation events eventually after a population splits off. So if you take a large group of English speakers and you split them up into smaller groups and you put them on different islands so they never talk to each other, you can expect their rate of differentiation in how their languages change is going to accelerate. Now, this isn't exactly a dissenting opinion, but I want to throw this bit in from the Linguistic Society of America on the uh, diversity of language compared to biological diversity. So the languages of the world seem amazingly diverse, but when you compare them to communication systems in general, they're all remarkably similar to one another. Uh Quote, human language differs from the communicative behavior of every other known organism in a number of fundamental ways, all shared uh, across languages. They say, quote, human language is so different from any other known system in the natural world that the narrowly constrained ways in which one grammar can differ from another fade into insignificance. For a native of Milan, the differences between the speech of that city and that of uh, Turin may loom large. 
But for a visitor from Kuala Lumpur, both are simply Italian. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the differences we find across the, the world in grammar seem very important. But for an outside observer, say a biologist studying communication among living beings in general, or this is me, but dare say, you know, an, an angelic destroyer sent down or a <laughs> Babylonian god, uh -huh. quote, all are relatively minor variations on the single theme of human language. That's interesting. Yeah. Stuff that may appear very diverse to us because we are so highly attuned to the differences between it just from an outside encoding perspective is not all that different. Yeah, they're all speaking Earth anyway. They're all speaking human. Yeah. So what drives language change? Like, well, again, we've touched on, a on, on some of the reasons, but, yeah. uh, but what, what's your, your take in your research, Joe? Well, obviously, this is not a settled issue. I mean, there are all kinds of things that drive changes in language. Um, some appear to be these fairly random kind of influences and in changes in pronunciation and stuff like that. Sociolinguists, uh, and this, this is a point that um, Whitfield makes in his article, sociolinguists would point out that sort of random artifacts of culture can influence language trends. And so they might give the example of the idiosyncratic speech patterns of a very high-status person or social group get copied a lot. Hmm. And that can become the, the sort of driving factor in the way languages change over time. Imagine if Marlon Brando's the coolest guy in America and suddenly all, all the men in America start mumbling their words like him. Or if you're uh, if you're living in England and it's recently been conquered by French aristocrats, suddenly you might you might want to start incorporating more francophonic features into your speech. So you talk more like the new bosses and the new rich people. Gotcha. Your company is purchased by a different company yeah. and they have different uh, bits of business jargon. And suddenly you're speaking like that at home. That's God what... forbid. <laughs> that would be that would be grounds for the confusion of tongues within business. <laughs> Uh, there are even ideas that genetics could influence language change. Not, I, I think this, it's not strongly, it's not believed that this is strongly determinative by mm -hmm. anybody that I know of who say like, you know, that you have genes for speaking Chinese or something. But in, in a more subtle way, it appears that there could be certain types of uh, genes that favor the development of certain types of languages. So, for example, it appears there could be these certain ancestral genes that correlate with the development of what's known as tonal languages versus non-tonal languages. And a tonal language is one in which saying basically the same word, the same uh, sequence of phonemes with a different pitch or tone has a different meaning. Chinese is a good example of this. Yeah, like there are multiple ways to say ma. We say ma in our tongue, and it means one thing. Yeah. But it can mean, uh, you're, you, you say it wrong, you might think you're saying a mother in Chinese, but you're actually saying horse yeah. or hemp. Really? Is that a direct? Yeah, yeah that's one of them. Horse or hemp? Well, that, that's, just, that's just three of them. Yeah, mother, horse, and hemp, but then there are additionals as well. So how, can you do the different pronunciations? How, what does it sound like? Well, you have, there's like rising, rounded, so there's like, and there's, there's like ma, 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 ma. Uh, those are just a few, but just wow. uh, just an idea of just some of the tones. And that's why a, a language like uh, Mandarin Chinese mm -hmm. is it can be so difficult for, uh, f for so, say, an English speaker yeah. uh, to pick up on. I mean, that sounds amazingly difficult to learn if you don't come from a language that has tonal qualities to it. Yeah, we well, you know, the thing is, we don't and we do. Uh, I, I, huh. I thought about this a lot because certainly your tone in saying certain words in English can can have a a very important effect on what you're saying. Uh, the, hmm. 
not so much changing the definition of a word, but changing the connotations. Of right. What you're yeah. So, so it's not. Yeah, it's not a direct comparison, but it's it's kind of like the the the, the importance of tone in English uh, taken to a, a, a different level altogether. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. But it, anyway, so the idea here is that. Um, not so much that you would have a gene that tells you to speak a certain lang- uh, to speak a language like that, but that there are certain genes that appear to be geographically correlated with areas where people had uh, developed languages with tonal features. So that could play a role. But another interesting feature is the fact that if languages evolve like organisms, if this is if this analogy is correct at all. They're more like the evolution of bacteria than the evolution of, say, complex mammals because languages can trade horizontally, right? The transmission of languages is not just vertical across generations. You don't just directly inherit your language from your parents. You largely do. But it's also horizontal. You get new words, new speaking patterns, new grammatical rules, from the people around you, and you can trade them off. So mm-hmm. it is more like the horizontal gene transfer you'd see in microbial life. And that's true. That's a good point. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, it's not just the people around you. It's the TV programs around you as well. Yes. Uh, and to, to, to another extent, the books you read. Uh, you have all these uh, these influences that are, are taking what you were uh, essentially given by those who reared you, mm-hmm. and uh, and you're you're recreating it every day. Yeah. So in the creation of new languages, I think the the analogy of evolution by natural selection or maybe not natural selection, evolution by some kind of selection, evolution by vague selection is somewhat a good analogy. And in other ways, it's not a perfect analogy. But I also have a question for any linguists out there listening. So we've talked about the difficulties of identifying, you know, or the idea of a species in biology before. In biology, the species distinction is usually taken to mean that two different species are animals or organisms that cannot breed and produce fertile offspring. So if we follow the analogy between genomics and linguistics, what is the equivalent distinction between different species of language? I mean, you might be tempted to say, well, it's when you can't understand one another, but there are varying degrees of understanding, right? You might sort of understand Mm -hmm. somebody. Uh, So anyway, if you have a good answer for that, you might want to email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com to let us know. All right. As we begin to close out here, I I want to talk very briefly about a a book and an idea that I imagine a number of you out there have been thinking about the whole time. Yeah. And that's Neil Stevenson's cyberpunk classic Snow Crash. I've never read this, but I've always meant to. Oh, yeah. This is the one, of course. It's it's a wild book. You've got so many fun elements going on in it. Uh, hero protagonist with a samurai sword. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the part that stuck with me the most and the part that, 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 uh, that jives with today's episode is this, uh, important plot point about, um, about this, uh, this, this, this thing that's referred to as the Namshub of Enki, uh, who we mentioned earlier. This is the Sumerian god. So the, the idea here, and this is like the, this is the, the version of it that, that Stevenson plays within the book, is he have this ancient Sumerian Ur language, and it allowed brain function to be programmed using audio stimuli in conjunction with a DNA-altering virus. Wow. So Sumerian culture in this uh, scenario uh, is organized around these programs known as me, which were administered by priests. Oh, yeah, the me. So they're in one of the uh, things I mentioned earlier, the... Uh uh, the the golden age passage yes. in the Sumerian epic. There, I think there is a recital of a May. Oh yeah, M E. That's that's it. Yeah, that that's what he's playing off of in this. So, 
Enki, this uh, the, this this important figure, this uh, this god, uh, develops a counter virus known as the Namshub, and then he delivers uh, uh, this to stop the Sumerian language from being processed by the brain. And this leads to the development of other less literal languages uh, giving birth to the Babel myth. So this would be a case where the confusion of languages, as described by uh, Enki confusing the tongues in this epic, is actually a, a benevolent thing. So, yeah, the idea that Stevenson is rolling out here is that if you have a monolinguistic culture, it's like having like a massive farm that's only one crop. Yeah. Because you're susceptible to a single virus or pathogen or parasite mm-hmm. just wiping it out. They specifically mention, say, uh, you know, uh, Nazism uh, yeah. coming in. And if, if it resonates with a few people, if everyone has the same language and essentially the same culture, then that, that, that harmful idea, that, that, that linguistic meme can just run rampant and eat everyone up. But if you have these, it, it's like having a forest fire break out in a global forest mm-hmm. with, a, you know, without any streams or plains to break it up. Everything's going to burn. I love this idea, and I, I think this is fascinating. I think it is a great case for preserving the diversity of human language and culture. I mean, I, I think sometimes it is tempting I think, wouldn't it be great if the whole world had one language and one culture? It mm-hmm. would be so easy for us all to get along. We could do it would, trade would be so much easier. We could just really, you know, it, like yeah. it seems utopian when you think about it. But I absolutely see some merit in the idea that that would make us much more uniquely vulnerable to a particularly bad linguistic or cultural program yeah. that gets instituted that uh, catches on easily. I mean, it's easy to think about memes like Nazism or like a really awful interpretation of a religion or something like that. And there are ideas that can be captivating to people that they feel very entranced by and beholden to, um, but they're utterly destructive. And if you have these divisions of culture and divisions of language where you can't play exactly the same linguistic meme on somebody else's brain – it's a it's a little bit of an immunity barrier. Yeah. Or what if the what if the the pathogen here is a is an intense desire to build a giant tower into the sky? Yeah. And maybe ultimately uh, the god or gods in this scenario saying, "Whoa, look at these people! They're totally wasting their time building this tower to nowhere. Mm-hmm. We better break that up before they hurt themselves." Yeah. The only uh, humane thing to do is to knock it down and thereafter call the land overthrow. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it, everybody. The Tower of Babel, artistic interpretations, mathematical interpretations, linguistic interpretations. And hey, there is a lot of awesome other Tower of Babel uh, literature and legend out there that we didn't even have time to get into today. So if you want to write us about your favorite Tower of Babel stories from uh, or, or equivalent legends from other, other types of literature or mythological history, let us know about that. That's right. In the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find... All the podcast episodes, including the the Great Flood episode that we mentioned earlier, which and the, ties in nicely with this. London Underground Mosquito. London also. Underground Mosquito as well. You'll find those episodes at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, along with blog posts, videos, and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all of those things. And if you want to get in touch with us, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
Overspending on Amazon? Earn while you shop with Drop. Earn rewards on every purchase, online or in-store. Download Drop now and use code DROP11 to get $5 in points. Get rewarded for shopping today. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And... Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.